Today's scripture reading is from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 7, verses 5 through 8. Hear God's word. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, Why do your disciples not walk according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? And he said to them, Well, did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, as it is written, This people honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. You leave the commandment of God and hold to the tradition of men. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everyone. For anyone who's visiting the church or if this is your first time with us, my name is Scott. I'm the pastor at Emmanuel. Uh, Very glad to be with you all this morning uh, and also very glad that we have a guest with us to uh, preach for us this morning. Jay Harvey will be preaching. Uh, He's an old friend. I've actually known him nearly 20 years now when I was first ordained. Uh, He was a minister in our presbytery. So the presbytery is the, the region of churches. Uh, And I wound up serving on a committee with him for a couple of years um, doing the credentialing process. And then he moved to Delaware to pastor a church. Uh, So I I would see him occasionally, but not too often, but was quite excited when he moved back to New York. So he moved back to Manhattan, where he now serves as the director of the Reformed Theological Seminary New York program. He also teaches practical theology there. Um, and so it's really uh, great for, for me now that he's back in the area to be able to welcome him. Uh, he's, he's worshiped with us. One of his kids was baptized at Emmanuel. Uh, so to have him preach today is really um, uh, an honor for us. Uh, just so you know a little bit more about him, he's, he's married to Melody, has, has children, and they all live together uh, in, here in New York City in Manhattan. And maybe that's all that I'll say, but uh, just really excited. I love Jay. Very glad he's with us this morning. So Jay, I'll hand things over to you. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you, Scott. It is great to be with you all this morning. And as Scott mentioned, my relationship with Emmanuel Church goes back many years. Some of you will remember Charlie Drew, who I saw on this call, um, the founding pastor of Emmanuel Church. Charlie was the one who led the examination of me to become a minister in our denomination. I still remember that examination. And um, I adopted him. I don't know if he was happy about this or not, but I adopted him as kind of a spiritual mentor of mine and would seek his counsel over the years. Um, And as Scott mentioned, my son, Jacob, who's now a freshman at Hunter College, uh, was baptized in Emmanuel. We were in Princeton, New Jersey, uh, doing campus ministry at Princeton University. And I was attending a church that did not practice covenant baptism. And so um, that church graciously uh, requested that Emmanuel Church uh, baptize our son. And um, at that time, I had no idea that we'd find ourselves in New York City again. Um, And here we are uh, many years later. Scott's introduction reminded me of one of the most liked tweets of 2020, which is a tweet by Macaulay Calkin, which says, I'm 40 years old. Um, that makes you feel old, you're welcome. <laughs> so um, when Scott said we know each other for 20 years, I thought, wow, uh, time does fly by. So it's especially great to be with you. And as I was thinking about this message um, last night, uh, it occurred to me that Charlie, uh, when, your founding pastor, he preached the uh, installation message or gave a charge to me 
uh, as a pastor, when I became the pastor at, at Evangelical Presbyterian Church in Newark, Delaware. And I've never forgotten that charge. You know, some sermons pass through, preachers know this, we're not offended by this, it's just the way it is. Some things kind of pass through, and then some things land in your spirit and find a permanent home. And this charge that Charlie gave to me from Hebrews 13, 7, it found a permanent home with me by God's grace. And that verse says, remember your leaders, those who spoke the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And Charlie's point to me is, as a young minister at the time, was to not become confused with the way I regarded leaders and the tradition that they represented. His point was, uh, the scripture here says to consider the outcome of their way of life, but imitate their faith. That is, don't mimic your leaders. Don't mimic tradition. Don't mimic the way things have always been. Be willing to trust the Holy Spirit when he leads you to do something different. Be sensitive to his leading. Remember faith. Imitate faith. Uh, but don't mimic anyone or just follow a tradition blindly. And there would be times in my ministry, and I don't even know if Charlie, <clears throat> if I've ever shared with him the degree to which that charge has been used to prompt me, sometimes in very difficult situations where God would show me that I was really doing business as usual or going with the flow when the spirit was leading in an entirely different direction. And it would take faith to step out. Uh, but when I would do that, indeed, I would find God doing something bigger and more powerful than I ever imagined. And that relates a lot to this message today, because what we're going to see here, and so to, as, as FT showed us, that God has given us a superpower in Jesus. As we move into to 2021, uh, we need to remember that the superpower that we have is in Jesus himself. It's not in ourselves. It's certainly not in any of the traditions of our church, of our culture, of our families. But this superpower is in Jesus. Now, I can promise you that this sermon will not be as good as the children's sermon. I just have to say that uh, right up front. That, that, I'm glad you recorded it. And I think we should uh, play this children's sermon again as a model uh, message and, and really inspiring. But I can promise you the sermon will expand upon it. Um, that, that I can promise. And I can also tell you that that is, is simply um, the grace of God himself, because that was not a coordinated effort uh, to expand upon it. So my family moved, as Scott said, to Manhattan in June of 2018. And um, we uh, have, have Stayed in Manhattan throughout the, the pandemic. Um, and, you know, as we look toward 2021, um, so many things are obviously uh, remarkable um, as we look behind us. As I mentioned, there was a, one of the most liked tweets of, of 2020 was that tweet by Macaulay Culkin reminding us that we're all older. The most liked tweet of 2020 was on the announcement of the death of Chadwick Boseman. And I think it's fitting in a way that the most liked tweet of 2020 was a tweet about profound loss. Certainly, we have felt loss in 2020. Many of you will have also felt God's presence and encouragement in the midst of that loss. Some of you today are still struggling 
with profound loss. And it's right that we uh, lament that. We, we need to lament that in order to find joy and sustenance within it. And having stayed in New York City through the height of the, the pandemic, um, with the exception of a day trip my family took to the Jersey Shore, uh, and a couple of trips out of town, just back and forth down to Princeton, doing things related to RTS, um, we would, I would walk in the city sometimes. And walking through the city uh, at the height of the pandemic was an experience that was both eerie on the one hand and kind of amazing on the other. It certainly felt like the twilight zone, as many of you probably experienced this, you're riding your city bike unencumbered down the middle of Fifth Avenue with nobody around you. Just incredibly weird. It was beyond sobering to see trucks filled with image bearers who departed because of COVID-19 less than a mile from our apartment at NYU Hospital. At the same time, while being eerie, the grandeur of New York City was on display in a way that I'll probably never see it again. New York City is normally clothed from head to toe with human beings. It's the best way I know to describe it. We're constantly, we, we were before the pandemic, constantly shoulder to shoulder with people in the city, especially as, as I'm thinking about the city in, in, in Manhattan where, where we live. And then all of a sudden it seemed empty. These clothes were peeled back and you, left, you saw a skeletal structure, a body. Um, transit arteries stood bare. No longer impressive because of the people filling them, but simply by the invitation and the architecture that they bespoke. This infrastructure of the city was laid bare. And I remember thinking whenever people were uh, decrying the ultimate demise of New York City because of COVID-19, I remember thinking to myself, uh, New York City and, and Manhattan is going to come back because of its design, uh, its infrastructure. This city is designed in a way to allow millions of people to come together and connect in a way that almost no other city in the world can rival. It's coming back because of the way it's made. New York City is not what it is because it's fashionable um, or because it's full of, of wonderful, intelligent people um, or because it has millions of people. It is all of those things, I think, ultimately because of its design. It has capacity to host this incredible, glorious mass of humanity and therefore to host amazing things as image bearers of God gather together in the city. And I think New York City is going to come back for those reasons. And indeed, we see it already happening. But as we look toward 2021, I want to think about, um, as, as we're hopeful uh, looking toward 2021, hopeful about a vaccine that awaits us, um, hopeful that things will be different. We also, of course, need to be realistic that uh, there'll be some things that will be different, we hope, and some things that won't be. And I want to think about three things that we can expect to find in 2021. And they all relate to this idea that FT presented to us, that Jesus himself is indeed our superpower. I'll simply adopt all the power of his children's message, and hopefully that it just trickles down into what I'm going to share with you as well. So the first thing that we can expect to find in 2020 is resistance. 
resistance. Um, this passage opens with a scene where Jesus is with his disciples, and there's been um, an envoy sent from Jerusalem, an envoy of religious leaders, the Pharisees, who were um, kind of the populist leaders, we might say, of Jesus' own day, popular religious leaders of Israel. And they've heard that Jesus has been doing miracles, he's been teaching, he's gathered people to himself, and so they come to investigate what's happened. And when they come, they notice something. Jesus, with his disciples, do not follow all of their traditions. Those They say to Jesus, um, your disciples do not walk according to our the traditions of our fathers. And here we see this uh, reality that if you're finding your superpower in Jesus, you're going to find resistance uh, all around you. Sometimes it will be subtle. Uh, sometimes it will be profound. And the reason that you're going to find that resistance is you're going to be enculturated and find yourself in places, in families, um, in workspaces, um, in, in celebration of, of traditions of our country, an inauguration, uh, perhaps, where on the one hand, you can appreciate what's happening, but on the other hand, um, you can't be full on board with what's happening because your superpower is in Jesus and your hope is in Jesus and the power and the hope presented by that particular tradition is, is not in Jesus, or at least is not fixed completely upon Jesus. So you can expect to find this kind of resistance if you're finding life in Jesus. And what's interesting is that Mark begins his gospel differently than all the other gospels begin. And he begins in a different way to make a particular point. So the gospel of John begins his gospel from all eternity past. He begins his gospel with Jesus as uh, before, uh, with the son of God as the logos uh, in eternal fellowship with the father before he has assumed uh, human nature, uh, become the man Jesus. Uh, so that's where Mark begins from eternity past. And the point is that in, in, in excuse me, and John begins from eternity past. And the point of John is uh, the Logos is the one through whom all things are made. And the Logos is the one in whom you will find ultimate meaning and significance. And Jesus now is Logos incarnate. And you will find life and light in him in a dark world. So that's how John begins eternity past. Matthew begins tracing the genealogy of Jesus back to David. He shows that Jesus is the great Messiah of Israel. And he shows that he is reconstituting with Jesus and his disciples uh, a new Israel, a new hope for the world. Luke begins um, emphasizing the work of the Holy Spirit in conceiving Jesus for all peoples. And he traces genealogy, all, the genealogy of Jesus all the way back to Adam, emphasizing Jesus as the Savior of the world. Well, how does Mark begin? What Matthew and Luke and John spend chapters explaining, Mark simply chooses to summarize. Mark summarizes that Jesus was driven by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by Satan, whereas Matthew and Luke will describe that temptation in detail. 
Mark summarizes Jesus' baptism simply to let us know that God the Father declared that this was his son in whom he is well pleased. And within the span of 12 short verses, we arrive at what Mark really wants us to hear powerfully and clearly and immediately. And that is that Jesus is, um, in Jesus, has the kingdom of God has been fulfilled. And we think about the kingdom of God, we're thinking about God's presence and his power. And so Mark gets us there faster than any other gospel. And I think there's an important message in that for us, especially it's good news for us as we move in to 2020. Because we uh, are already convinced, many of us, that we need power. Uh, 2020 has humbled us. As we look into 2021, uh, we're, we're humbled. Uh, we are aware of our weakness, of our frailty, of our immortality. And Mark comes thundering with hope and clarity and a powerful reminder that in Jesus, we find the kingdom of God, superpower. The power and presence of God for us are in Jesus. They're not in the things that we lost. Not that those things were bad, but they were never sufficient. It's not that we shouldn't lament the loss. We should. But we must lament with hope, knowing that Jesus is our power and our presence of God. So the way Mark begins really drives home this point, that you find this power and presence in Jesus. And there's going to be resistance when you're a disciple of Jesus because you're surrounded by people who don't find the power and presence of God in Jesus. Enter in, once again, the Pharisees. The Pharisees were some of the most religious people in Jesus' day. They considered themselves gatekeepers of God's people to keep them drifting away from God through false worship on the one hand and cultural assimilation on the other. And to do this, they came up with traditions. They came up with traditions other than what God himself had prescribed. God himself had prescribed some traditions of worship for the people. But the Pharisees went beyond this. And they did it with a good motive. Uh, That is, they did it in hopes of keeping the people close to God. Again, through avoiding false worship and not being culturally assimilated. But the Pharisees made two mistakes And these two mistakes are easy to make with our traditions. The first mistake that they make is before they knew what they had done, perhaps, they had assigned a power to a tradition that only belongs to God himself. In this case, it was the power to purify, to cleanse. 2020 has made some of us more aware of our moral frailty, not only our mortality, but our moral frailty as well. We look back and we see that under the stress of 2020, things came out of our lives that were perhaps shocking or disappointing. And we need purification. We need cleansing. We feel defiled, if we're honest. Well, the Pharisees' mistake was to think that they could address defilement with a tradition, in this case, the tradition of the elders to wash their hands before they eat in a certain way. 
and to wash their utensils and their dishes in a certain way. See, the mistake they're making is to assign a power to a tradition that is, a, that is, a, that is only um, properly given to God himself and that God, him, God himself is given to Jesus. That's their mistake. Now, we should remember that the Jewish people had an elaborate tradition themselves. They had a sacrificial system. But that sacrificial system was never intended to be the means of cleansing. It was intended to point toward something that only God himself can do. And this is powerfully illustrated in the life of David. David had a moment when he drifted from his superpower, like Mr. Incredible. David was Mr. Incredible. He's described as a man after God's own heart. He's a warrior. He's a musician. He's a poet. I mean, that's totally unfair, right? Uh, He's everything everybody wants to be, all in one guy. And on top of that, at one point, he's described as a man after God's own heart. But even he can drift, and he drifts greatly and tragically. In a time of war, David looks out from his balcony, and he sets his eyes on Bathsheba, a beautiful woman who is married to one of his best soldiers, Uriah. David commits adultery with her. And then, rather than acknowledging it and turning from it and asking God's forgiveness, he seeks to cover it. First, he seeks to cover it by inviting Uriah back and setting up a scenario, hoping that Uriah will sleep with his wife because she is now pregnant with a child. And David wants Uriah to think it's his child. So he seeks to cover this moral failure. In stinging irony, Uriah refuses to sleep with his own wife um, because he, he's, his men are at war and he feels like it would be a lack of integrity for him to forsake the calls by enjoying that company with his wife. So that plot to cover it up doesn't work. So David uh, sends further and seeks to cover this by conspiring a situation on the battlefield where Uriah is is thrust into um, what will become his imminent death. So he has Uriah killed by conspiring a particular situation on the battlefield. Well, David is brought to realize his sin, his failure. And when he does, he offers up a prayer that gives us an incredible window into what it looks like to recapture and return to Jesus Christ as the power and the presence of God. And it also tells us that, again, at the height of Israel's own system of traditional worship, which God himself established, it was never about the tradition. It was always about God himself. Because David prays this. He says in Psalm 51, 2, wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. So he's calling upon God to do what only God can do, and that's to deal with the defilement of his heart. He also says in that psalm, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Again, only God can create a new heart for us and give us a new spirit. And then he says toward the end of the psalm, for you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not 
despise. Now, what David is saying there is not that he intends to forsake all formal worship in Israel. But what he's saying is he understands that the tradition and the worship of God's people at that time was intended to point to a greater reality that only God himself could accomplish. Namely, only God can deal with our defilement. Only God can deal with our sin. Only God can deal with our loss. Only God can deal with our brokenness. And only God can give us hope for the future. So that's the first mistake that the Pharisees make. They assign to a tradition a power that belongs to God himself and that God gives to us in Jesus Christ. And the second mistake they make is related to the first mistake they make. That's so often the case, isn't it? The second mistake they make is because they have assigned this power that belongs only to God to one of their traditions, they don't see the power in Jesus himself. They don't see Jesus as the one in whom they find the power and presence of God. They see Jesus as just another teacher, another perspective, another movement, another voice to be leveraged or not leveraged, to be supported or to be opposed. But they don't see in Jesus the living power of God himself. And that second mistake is because of the first mistake. So we're going to encounter resistance if we walk with Jesus, just like these disciples did, because there'll always be this tension for us. We're going to always find ourselves in spaces and, and with people, friends, and family who aren't finding the power and presence of God in Jesus. And we're going to have to be aware that's going to create some tension. Now, let's not respond to that tension by opposing those people. Let's not respond to that tension by degrading or setting ourselves up as judges over them. Let's respond to that tension with a certain form of remembrance. Uh, a remembrance that we're going to talk about next as, as a type of repentance. Let that tension remind us and, and move us to worship Jesus himself rather than any other tradition or way. So the second thing um, related to this resistance, we encounter resistance, let it lead us into a type of repentance. I hope that 2020 leads, 2021 leads us into a repentance. Because as we see with David, we also see with ourselves. And that is the inevitable tendency of the human heart is to use tradition to cover the needs that only God himself can provide or fulfill. This begins early on. Some of you who have read the Bible a lot will be familiar with the story of Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. When they sin against God in the Garden of Eden, they seek to hide from him, and then they uh, seek to cover their shame. This is the tendency of the human heart. It is a tendency that persists with Christians. It is a tendency that persists um, with everyone around the world. And we see here, uh, when Jesus responds to this criticism of the Pharisees in Mark 7, 6, and 7, he quotes from one of the prophets of the Old Testament. He says in verse 6, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching his doctrines the commandments of men. So what Jesus is exposing here is something particularly concerning, right? That you can even take uh, something good as a tradition, 
something that has a good purpose. And it can become something that is vain and empty for you if you assign a weight and a power to it that it can't carry. This is a form of hypocrisy where we're just covering over what's really happening, uh, putting on a face about it, and going through life um, using these traditions or what have you uh, to, to, to cover our, our need and our, our, that only God can fulfill. So I want to think about um, repentance, and, and, and let's think of repentance in this way. Repentance formally means to turn, to turn, turn away from that which is opposed to Jesus and to turn toward Jesus himself, to turn away from those places or people where we're seeking uh, to find the power and presence of God and, and turn toward Jesus. When we think about it, I think we can think of it as labeling. Uh, repentance can also includes this kind of labeling of those places, naming them specifically, because if we can't name a thing, we can't deal with a thing, right? That, that's the whole point of being woke, right? If you're not alert to an injustice, you can't address an injustice. If you can't name a thing, you can't turn from a thing. So repentance is labeling where we have assigned power and presence to things that don't really have it and returning to Jesus. Now, let me think about with you about three different types of traditions briefly uh, that provide an opportunity for us to repent on a regular basis. The first one is church tradition. God has established a tradition for us of weekly worship to address this very tendency of our heart. So we tend to drift from God rather than toward God. And to counter this drift, Jesus himself has established some new traditions for us. So we gather together weekly. We set our eyes on Jesus as his word is read to us. They speak fresh life to us. We sing his praises. And in so doing, we displace all other sources of hope and we enthrone him as our king and our hope. We gather together with the Lord's Supper and we remember that we have a hope and a family in Jesus himself, the family of God. See, in this Christian tradition, which is weekly, it's given to us by God, it provides us an opportunity to draw near to Jesus, but it can also become dangerous for us. Even in this practice of worship established by God as it is, we can, be, we can use it as a means of covering, uh, simply going through the motions, thinking that this ritual of worship is able to do what only Jesus himself can do. The point is always Jesus. It's not just going through the motions. So I think one thing that we can do to help us uh, practice this kind of repentance and to keep our focus on Jesus in the midst of these traditions is to be grateful for what is represented, but be mindful of what cannot be fulfilled. Be grateful for what is represented in a tradition, but be mindful of what cannot be fulfilled by that tradition. So in the case of worship, we are grateful for the family of God. We are grateful for gathering together to sing God's praises. 
we are grateful for our participation in the Lord's Supper. And we're grateful because all of this represents to us, not something achieved in themselves, but something that we ultimately find realized in Jesus Christ. He's the one who fulfills the promise of our worship. Nationally, we have a tradition coming up soon with a presidential inauguration. Now, as a society, we need to have the best society that we have. So we are grateful for this tradition. We're grateful for a peaceful transfer of power, imperfect power, it may be. We're grateful for systems of justice, imperfect systems they are. We seek to make them more perfect, but we're grateful for them while not lionizing them or idolizing them. You know, as we think about justice in our society, I've heard, um, you hear sometimes after a court verdict uh, is rendered, sometimes a prosecutor or a judge or, or some other spokesman will come out and say, we have seen justice. <laughs> we have seen justice. It's not actually correct. It, it may be correct. We may have seen proximate justice. We may have seen as close as we're going to get to justice. But no matter how close we get to justice, there's always going to be a greater and more perfect justice that Jesus himself is going to bring to bear. Now, that's not a reason to be complacent. And sometimes Christians have abused the, this notion of, of future hope and, and perfect justice that Jesus will provide. They, they've taken it as an excuse to allow for and sometimes even be complicit with forms of injustice. And if they do that, if Christians are doing that, it actually shows they don't know Jesus himself in doing that. But on the other hand, recognizing that this national tradition this uh, of an inauguration represents a reality for which we can be grateful, but yet it's, it's, uh, it's something that can never be fully fulfilled for us. It only finds ultimate fulfillment in Jesus it keeps us from becoming cynical on the one hand and complacent on the other. Of course, we'll find there will be people who struggle greatly with this and seek to place all their hope on, uh, on a nation uh, in a way that God never intended that nation to bear that type of a hope. Lastly, we can speak about tradition within family. You know, COVID-19 has been particularly challenging because we tend to have traditional family gatherings, and many of those have been quashed in COVID-19. There's also been traditional processes of grieving that have just been quashed in COVID-19. I had the privilege of participating in a Jewish funeral service uh, for the mother of a dear friend over Zoom. It was a lovely service. The, the rabbi did a wonderful job. I was invited to read uh, a psalm in that service, and it was a great honor to be able to participate in that way. But it just wasn't the same as being together in person. We, there's a tradition of how you grieve with someone when they are about to depart, and it's been tragic that families have been lost and separated uh, for, for the rest of their natural life through the process of death and haven't been able to be together. These are things that we rightfully mourn because uh, we mourn them because this isn't the way God designed the world to be. And so COVID-19 has hit our families, smaller, but not too small things, right? High school graduations. My, son was, my son's high school graduation was online. 
the first day of school for some people, that traditional act of sending them off, you know, plugging up and turning them on, the log on to school, right? There's been a loss of traditions in families. On the other hand, some of these uh, traditions we're able to maintain. Uh, but the point is this, just as with the church, uh, just as with our nation, when it comes to our family, we need to be grateful for what's represented in these traditions, but also be mindful that ultimately what's represented can only be fulfilled in Jesus. So lastly, I hope in 2021, as, uh, as we move into it, that we will actually find Jesus himself as our superpower, that he will be our reward. We're going to encounter resistance. We can respond to it with repentance. And then we'll find Jesus himself consistently to always be our reward. This passage uh, concludes with Jesus' final verdict on this inquisition of the Pharisees. He says in verse 8, You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. You leave the commandment of God and you hold to the tradition of men. Jesus here speaks of God's commandments, and this is a, a loaded rebuke for the Pharisees themselves. They considered themselves experts in God's commandments. They thought the traditions of the elders were helping them keep God's commandments. And Jesus breaks up this understanding. He says there's commandment and there's tradition. And the Pharisees had actually departed from the commandments and are now worshiping and being held by the tradition. It's a particularly stunning rebuke. I wonder what our view is of the commandments today. Do we see commandment from God as fundamentally something that is oppressive? Or do we see commandments from God as fundamentally liberating? Or maybe to use more philosophical language, is the law of God oppressive or is it emancipatory, we might say? Are these commandments given to restrict us on the one hand, or are they given to help us become all that God intends us to be? Now, the scriptures actually speak directly to this question with very clear language. In James 125, one of the earliest books of the New Testament, a book full of Christian wisdom reflecting on Jewish heritage, James says, the one who looks into the perfect law, the commandments, the law of liberty and perseveres, being no hearer who forgets, but a doer who acts, he will be blessed in his doing. So James refers to the commandments here as the law of liberty. And indeed, the commandments are liberating. How so? It's the commandments of God that allow us to see into our lives and see into our traditions and allow us to label where we have misplaced our hope. They allow us to see where we've assigned a power and a presence that can only ultimately be found in God himself. They allow us to label those things so that we can turn from them. In that sense, they are liberating because they point out who the oppressor is. 
And the commandments are also liberating because just as New York City was designed to flourish, is designed to flourish with this incredible capacity, so you too are designed by God to flourish. And as much as these commandments give us direction, give us an ability to label what's oppressing us and return us back to Jesus for true power and the true presence of God, they also give us direction and show us how we're both, how we're designed to flourish. But here is a really key point. If you look at these commandments of God, any commandment, take, take any one that's in the scriptures. If you look at it on its own, and you don't let it point you to Jesus, it actually will oppress you because it will simply expose you, but it won't deliver you. A commandment can expose you, but a commandment cannot deliver you. A commandment can direct you and you need its direction, but a commandment cannot empower you. Only Jesus can deliver. Only Jesus can cleanse. Only Jesus can empower. You know, we move into 2021 this morning. It's a, again, it's a great honor to be able to begin 2021 with Emmanuel Church this morning. I want you to know that you too, like New York City, have incredible capacity. You've been designed by God to do things that are uniquely given you to do. The children who have uh, persisted with us <laughs> through this sermon Children, you have special things to do that God has given you to do. And you know, the things that God has given you to do, you're not to compare with your friends or with your parents or anyone else, because that's not how God looks at it. God wants you to do the things that he's given you to do and to enjoy those things. They're special just for you. The same goes for all of us. We love to compare what God's given us to do with what others have been given to do. And that causes us to envy and to despair, and ultimately not flourish. God would call us, as we move into 2020, to know that we're not intended to sit on the sidelines. I'm sorry, 2021. We're not intended to sit on the sidelines as we move into 2021. Instead, he has things for us to do. And the scripture describes it in this way. He says, you were God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works which God prepared beforehand that you should walk in them. You know, ultimately, Jesus is our reward in 2021. He's the one in whom we're going to find the power and the presence of God. He's the one who's going to enable us to do these things that God has called us specifically to do. You have a good father who loves you. And he has things laid up for you to do in the year to come. And I hope that you and I will both uh, be led by his spirit to constantly return to Jesus as the power and the presence of God, enabling us uh, to walk with him in the new year. Our Father and God, I thank you for this church. I thank you for the opportunity to share in this fellowship this morning. And we do pray that you would allow us by your mercy, uh, to behold the power and presence of God in Jesus Christ in the year to come. It's in his name that we pray. Amen.